Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where myself, Nick Hill, and Daniel Foch sit around and talk about real estate. But we've got a special episode today because we've got a guest on. But before we do that, introduce myself. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and co-host of the biggest and best podcast for real estate in the country. And I'm joined here by the brains of the operation, Mr. I Daniel thought it was the looks in the operation. You can't have both, man. Fine. Come on. Um, <laughs> I think we're going to Daniel Foshe, real estate investor, broker, bunch of other stuff. Um, going to start off with a review here. This comes from Matt Carson underscore J. It says, worth their weight in real estate gold with two exclamation marks at the end there. I first caught on to these lads about five months ago after developing a... S- Super tall high rise structure. No, just kidding. <laughs> After developing a big appetite for Canadian related real estate investing content, this podcast has provided excellent insight into the Canadian real estate market. I'm just blown away by how much information the boys put out every week without becoming repetitive. It's easy to see how much time, effort, and care goes into putting these podcasts together. And I must say, I really appreciate it. Cheers to you both. He's got like all the the lads, the boys, the cheers. I feel like I should be cracking a cold one with Matt Carson here. Thanks, man. I I actually appreciate you saying that our work is evident because this thing is quite a bit of work. Not gonna lie. Thank you, Matt. That's that's great, lads. We'll have to have a yeah, lads pints. There we go. Anyways, um, let's get into today's episode because it is a bit different than our regular program because you don't just have to listen to Dan and I today. You get to listen to a very special, very intelligent guest, someone that everyone needs in their life, but someone that is very hard to find. She plays a bit of a hybrid role within our organization as both a property manager and as a paralegal, which to be honest is a pretty badass combination. So first things first, what's what's a paralegal? Well, yeah. Is it like a paranormal thing? No, absolutely not. Hmm. What about like a paramedic? I mean, you're getting closer there, I think. You're fixing of problems. I think from the Latin para, I'm going to uh, do my little, Latin, Latin, my little yes. Latin lesson again. Yeah, well, this is a good you. application of it. Uh, Latin origin meaning defense or protection against that which protects from or from the Italian para, imperative of parare. You would know that with your Italian roots to ward <laughs> off. Uh, and from the Latin parare, which is to make ready uh, or to produce or procure. It figures in parachute, parasol, parapet, etc. So paralegals prepare legal documents, paralegal, prepara legal ah. documents. And yeah, there you go. It's all pretty easy, right? Once you figure <laughs> out the language stuff. Uh, and they conduct research to assist lawyers or other professionals. Independent paralegals provide legal services to the public as allowed by government legislation, which within the scope of that in a lot of jurisdictions in the country of Canada uh, does vary on a provincial basis, but is the landlord and tenant disputes. And so that's one of the big things that we dive into in this conversation. It's actually the thing. Um, and and they provide paralegal services on contract to law firms or other establishments or individuals. They file claims, assemble documents and evidence, prepare clients and witnesses for appearance in court and represent clients in court. Now, if you're a landlord dealing with any issues with your tenant, a paralegal can be a huge asset. And a paralegal that helps manage your properties, well, even better. Yeah. So let's 
quickly touch on what a property manager will do, what their usual roles and responsibilities are. So that can be anything from setting the right rent price to getting a vacant unit ready, uh, making marketing rental vacancies, tenant screening and approving those tenants, um, you know, drafting up lease agreements, managing tenant, tenant complaints and any property issues, rent collection, rent adjustments, and then of course conducting, you know, property management, maintenance and, and any ongoing and needed repairs. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think, you know, in this conversation, we discuss a lot of things above and beyond that and more into the legal side of what Nikki does, which is laws that govern the landlord and tenant relationship broadly, but also, you know, more specifically to specific documents in, in certain areas, especially Ontario, given that there's so much challenge with the landlord and tenant board. We talk about rent control. We talk about evictions, screening tenants, which is, you know, as we discuss, a huge thing. Tenants are in one, in one of, you know, can be one of the biggest assets to your, your or business. Or liabilities. Or liability, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, we talk about the forms and notice periods, property management, and then what to do if there's a problem in approaching those landlord and tenant boards or court systems. We also go over what not to do, which I found very interesting. Uh, and then kind of, you know, what are the three most important things a landlord can do from a property management perspective to maximize their asset? But enough of us. Let's dive into this awesome conversation with probably I'm going to nominate her as the MVP on our team here, Dan, licensed paralegal and owner of Nikki Shepherd Incorporated, which offers services such as property management, consultations and legal representation and advice for landlords. So without further ado, here is our chat with Nikki. Okay, here we are, Dan, myself and we have a third highly anticipated extremely intelligent a wonderful resource for us who is here to tell us all about things like property management how to screen tenants evictions rent control laws that govern the landlord and tenant relationship and a whole bunch more man this episode has been a long time coming and i am happy that we are finally here welcome nikki we're excited to have you as our as our um, one of our re- regular recurring guests, I guess, on the show. Because I think what will happen. So I guess a goal today would be to kind of broadly cover everything that's gonna that we that you know a beginning landlord would need to know. Um, especially, you know, one of the big topics talked about in the real estate industry right now is the failure of the landlord and tenant systems in the Canadian market. Uh, you know, there's been articles saying the landlord and tenant board has collapsed. Um, so maybe we can start by talking about that. And then what we'll do is we often open the floor up to our audience to try and get questions from the audience through email. And we'll have you back hopefully once a quarter to answer some of those questions and kind of really dive in on a more granular basis. So from 30,000 feet, um, could you just give us a quick introduction on what you do, how you're interacting with landlords and tenants on a regular basis, and then give us a summary of the mess that is happening in that space right now? Mm, well said, well said. Yes, it certainly is a mess. And thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, I am a licensed paralegal with the Law Society of Ontario. I do some property management work. I also represent um, landlords at the landlord and tenant board. So I do have firsthand experience, sadly, with the mess that you just uh, described. It definitely is a broken system right now. It is creating a lot of stress and headaches for landlords and tenants alike. Really, there just aren't enough adjudicators. And the biggest complaint that we're hearing right now is the length of time it takes to get your hearing before an adjudicator. 
Right now, although it says online six to eight months, in my experience, it's more like eight to 12 months. And we're really butting up against the 12-month mark right now. And most of these claims are rent control, like failure to pay rent. So these are N4 claims. So it's uh, not only stressful for the landlord because they're not getting rent, um, but also on top of it, they're having to wait a long time. So yes, it is a mess. So in that case, um, what things, maybe we can talk about it sort of preemptively first, and then mm-hmm. and then we can talk about solutions. So what things can a landlord do right away to, or, or, or during the tenant selection process to ensure that they're actually not putting themselves in a position of risk? And then what can they do when they've actually, you know, uncovered a problem, they're not getting rents to solve that problem without having to undergo the risk of not seeing rent for that eight to 12 month period that it takes to get a hearing? Yeah, great question. So it all starts with the vetting process, right? So definitely do your due diligence. Make sure you are vetting those tenants thoroughly. Uh, Listen to their story. Ask them open-ended questions about their situation, about their renting history, about their expectations of where they want to live. So it really has to be a good fit for everyone. Then you want to verify all of the information that they're giving you. You're verifying employment or income information. You're verifying their identification. You're also checking all of the references that they give you just to ensure that it is a good fit right from the beginning. From there, once the the lease is signed and the tenant is is, uh, residing in your unit, keeping communication open, treating that relationship just as it is, which is a business relationship, is key right from the start, making sure you're talking to your tenant, asking them if there's a situation, um, why they can't be paying their rent, working out any type of payment arrangements. All of these things will go a long way before ever needing to go to the tribunal. That should be your absolute last resort. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to to get there. Now, Nikki, we've had some firsthand experience, uh, the two of us and the three of us dealing with tenants that aren't paying rent. Let's walk through that situation from a communication standpoint. What are we doing? What's that line of communication when, um, you know, the, the, the first of the month has come and gone? It's now the second of the month. There's no rent in the account. What's the first couple steps after that? Yeah, absolutely. And so when I talk to landlords, a lot of the times they're hesitant to file a form. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to upset the relationship. But really, the first thing you need to do is have that conversation with the tenant. Find out why they're late. What's going on? When can you expect payment? Even when you have some sort of an agreement like that in place, you still want to file what's called an N4. Do that right away. It shouldn't be adversarial. It shouldn't be anything that should be taken as an insult. This is a business relationship and you can explain exactly what that N4 form means to the tenant. And that as soon as they pay their rent, that form is now void. So it does kind of come across as scary sometimes for a tenant when they see it, because there is an eviction date listed on that form, which the landlord has to be very careful with ensuring that they fill it out correctly. But if in the unfortunate circumstance, the tenant is unable to pay the rent, then at least you have that form and you can move forward quickly and efficiently in taking the next steps at the landlord tribunal to uh, try and get some of that rent recouped. Is there any, is there any advice or merit to, like I've heard 
you know, before I started involving you in a lot of these processes, I was often given the advice to start documenting everything in writing, like sooner rather than later when things get so, you know, things start to go awry. So I guess the questions are, you know, like, and I've actually, one of my landlord and tenant disputes, I actually had to present Facebook messenger messages because it was the only place I could um, find the tenant, like willing to (laughs) communicate with me. And, Mm -hmm. um, and they ended up, you know, working in my favor. But so I guess the question is number one, two part question. So number one, should you be trying to do all of this stuff over text message so that it's in writing? So you have something to later present to the board. And this would go coast to coast, by the way, like courts all function relatively similarly. Some, some courts aren't nearly as bad on the, on the landlord tenant system. Ontario is probably the worst, but, and then also, should you really be demonstrating an effort to be reasonable and almost mediating the, the process with the tenant and trying to give them options through that, that, communication and writing to show almost, I don't know, I don't want to say favor, but to show that you're making an honorable effort to work out the situation if things do end up in the worst case scenario. So how should we be doing everything in, in writing and what steps can we take to make sure that all of that written evidence in writing is, you know, helpful to you in the fullness of time. If you're, if, if all of that writing and communication does end up in a court, like you shouldn't be yelling at the, the tenant, you shouldn't be rude to them, right? You want to be respectful, a business transaction, very professional through and through, right? Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. Thank you. Because it is evidence-based. When you actually do get to hearing, it's evidence-based. So text messages, emails, even documentation of phone calls that you had, the date, the time, how long the phone call lasted, who was on the call, what did you discuss? All of these things do become part of the evidence that you're going to rely on when you're in a hearing. So that's very important. And, And going back to what I've already said, it is a business relationship. You do treat them uh, with respect. You know, being understanding and trying to work at a payment plan does go a long way. Uh, different things happen in, in everyone's life, and it could be through no fault of their own that they can't pay rent. And by you communicating that with them and offering them a, a payment plan and being understanding, even if they don't end up paying their rent, that will go a long way in your favor when you do get in front of a, an adjudicator. Yeah, great, great points. And, you know, this is something that that we have implemented, Nikki, um, in, in some of the properties is that, you know, I was one of those hesitant landlords at one point to to give an N4 immediately, right? And, you know, I've heard every excuse in the book, oh, later today or next week, whatever it may be. And I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. So I didn't want to go in with the scare tactics, but really it's not a scare tactic if you can develop it into a business process. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think the easiest way to look at that is like if you miss your phone bill payment, you get a notice right away that, yeah, that exactly. It, if you know if you miss any other payment, a bill payment, there nobody is not telling you that. And now all of a mm-hmm. sudden, like I don't understand the the reality that people feel like this sense of fear or shame. It's just a, it's literally just a notice that that person is behind in rent. And it, I think that in a lot of cases, it doesn't have to be confrontational. It's really just it is a mechanism to record mm-hmm. that that happened and make it clear because so that there's a record of it moving forward. Because if you stack up enough of those as well, it is grounds for eviction if somebody is late on rent uh, enough times. Um, And even to add to that, I'd say, I'd say it's, it's treating it more like a business and looking them as more like clients instead of just, you know, buddy, buddy, or, you know, the real classic mom and pop stuff where you're, you're there doing everything. This is just, 
you know, this is a step in the right direction to actually build out that business, build out those processes and just have those forms immediately go out um, and then immediately redacted when that rent is obviously paid. Um, I, I love I love the N4 conversation. I'd like to talk about some of the other very common forms and notices, uh, likely in the N category, starting with an N. Um, Nikki, walk us through some of the other ones that you see, and maybe we can start to, you know, pull a situation and some anecdotes uh, out of you from those. Yeah, for sure. So N4 is probably the most common, um, and that's non-payment of rent. Um, Another pretty common one is the N12, and that's um, a request for eviction, and I say request, and I'll explain that in a minute, um, a request for eviction for personal use. So this is if you want to evict a tenant because you yourself want to move in or you want to have family member move in, or if there's a new purchaser who wants to reside there once they uh, take possession. So that form is an N12. Uh, and there's there's many others. And N1 is a, a form notice of rent increase, which uh, we'll get into that. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, rent control and rent increases in a minute. But with all of these forms, the most important thing to remember is filling them out correctly. And I, I can't stress this enough because you could be waiting, like we said, eight, 12 months. You could get in front of an adjudicator. The first thing they're going to do is take a look at that form. When they look at the form, they're going to verify all of the information. And there's been many times through my own cases and also cases that I'm watching online where the adjudicator will dismiss the case without even hearing the merits of it, just because there's what we call a fatal error on the document. So this is maybe missing a unit number, misspelling a a tenant's name, not including one of the tenants on the form. So in that case, what happens is the clock restarts all over again. And that landlord has to refile those forms correctly and wait that whole eight to 12 months again. So is it called a fatal error because you've died and had to restart basically <laughs> in a respawn? Yep. Yeah, like exactly. that that is that is brutal. I mean, uh, you know, if you're if it's 59A and B or something like that and you forget a letter, you know, you've waited 12 months, you've been um you haven't been collecting rent for 12 months, you're finally at the landlord tenant board and one fatal error, one final boss and you have to restart all the levels. That's that's Literally horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the the next piece that would be worth talking about because a lot of our our listeners are investors who intend on investing in in multifamily property. Um, So I think that there's something worth discussing when you talk a little bit about scale in rental properties. So, you know, we went, you and I went through this recently with a fourplex that we have where, you know, the, the character of the building or the character of the other residents of the building really demanded for a certain type of tenant to be occupying that building. And we didn't want, you know, a new tenant, even though the rents had come up significantly and probably would, would have commanded a different type of tenant. I guess we can put it that way. Um, we wanted a tenant who would be a good fit for the building, just, you know, characteristically, the type of people that were there. What can you do as a, as a landlord or a property manager to, if you're in a multifamily building, to sort of protect the, let's call it like the harmony of an asset? Because one of the things that can really, and it could be, you know, responses, it could be using forms as an example to get people to stop doing behavior that's uh, interfering with that. I think it's, is it called the reasonable enjoyment of the property for others? I mean, I imagine you can discuss this in a little bit more of the, the legal A's, but um, like sort of how do we as landlords 
really protect that harmony that makes a multifamily asset, you know, one or more or more than one unit. So a duplex at a minimum, all the way up to, you know, the 10 unit buildings that we're working on. How do we make sure that those are operating efficiently and that headaches between one another aren't, um, aren't causing problems. And also we're not evolving into a referee role as a, as a property manager. Mm -hmm. Absolutely crucial, right? So you're managing personalities for one, and this is also a business. So it's really a balancing act. And this is where the property manager can play a crucial role because they can act as a mediator for one. Um, But then they can also know when to file appropriate forms. So there are disputes that do require intervention. Um, You know, a common one is the dog won't stop barking all hours of the night. We've given warnings. We've tried to, you know, keep the peace, but then the other tenants and the other units are, you know, not feeling well rested, maybe keeping the kids up at night, not making it to work on time. So it really is impacting the reasonable enjoyment. So how do you deal with that? The first thing is have a conversation with the with the tenants. Treat them with dignity, treat them with respect, explain that there's an issue. Most of the time, they will rectify it on their own. Most of the time, they'll say, I didn't realize that was an issue. Thanks for bringing it to me. However, if that doesn't happen, you will have to proceed with filing those forms and making sure that they are, they do understand that this could lead to an eviction. And if that's the case, that's what has to happen because it is important to have harmony throughout. They are coexisting. They are living in the same building. So that that is really important. So what are some of the examples of where things can start going awry here? Like where and where do we step in as a landlord versus saying, you know, figure it out on your own here, guys? Like, is it, you know, smoking in the units, I think, are some examples, uh, noise, um, you know, is there like, you know, threats to safety? Like, and what kind of is within this list of things that are that the court would like that would actually, I guess, cause you're thinking about what's actually going to get passed if you need an eviction as an example, or if you need some sort of legal involvement in a, in a, um, in the process to what actually qualifies as the, uh, interference with reasonable involvement of a reasonable enjoyment of, of somebody else's unit in the building. Like what would yeah. be examples there? Yeah. So, and you pretty much touched on them. <laughs> so excessive noise, certainly, um, which also goes along with the dog barking, anything that really does impact the reasonable enjoyment of other tenants. And I always say the first time you would have the conversation and give them a chance to rectify it on their own. The second time, though, they really do need to be served with with the the proper documents. And the other op- the other thing is, if they aren't served with the proper documents because you've still got that long uh, waiting period, you can always call bylaw enforcement. And so, bylaw enforcement oftentimes will step in, even though they don't get involved in in residential tenancy issues, if it's impacting the reasonable enjoyment. So if someone's up, for instance, partying all night, you know, many municipalities and many towns do have um, noise violations, you know, 11 o'clock is a pretty common one. So if it's two o'clock in the morning and they're partying, just call your bylaw enforcement, call the police, and you will have to get them involved sometimes as well. And that yeah, I've had to... become part of the evidence. I've had to call the there's a non-emergency police line. So you don't dial 911 and say, help, my my tenants are partying. But you do call the non-emergency line. And and uh, I've had to do that for, for some domestic issues. Very unfortunate, but yeah. they, they were a great help. 
I want to circle back to a topic I don't think we discussed enough, which was rent control. I know you had some stuff you wanted to say about that, Nikki. And just to preface rent control, I mean, I mean, the the laws here in Ontario, uh, where we all own property, is is two point five percent increase a year. I know those um, those metrics change and, and the laws change across the country, but why don't you provide us with your understanding of rent controls and maybe any other nuances that we're not thinking of or that that we don't know about. Yeah, so rent control is uh, a big question mark for many, many uh, landlords. And here in Ontario, and and like you said, right across the country, it basically limits the amount of rent that um, a landlord can increase by. So right now for 2023, it is 2.5%. Now, the important thing to know, though, is that has to be 90 days written notice. So there is a form, an N1, that the, the landlord has to fill out, and they have to give 90 days notice. Rent can only be increased once every 12 months. So often uh, confusion lies around, well, do I have to wait till the 12-month mark to then give the 90-day written notice? Or can I give the 90-day written notice at N1 before the 12-month mark? And you can. You can give it 90 days before the 12-month mark. So it kind of goes right up to the 12-month mark. um, And then that new rent increase will be kicking in at that time. Um, One of the big things that I, I get a lot is from folks wanting to negotiate in what they would say is good faith an unlawful rent increase. And I call it an unlawful rent increase because that's exactly what it is. So by law here in Ontario, tenants and landlords can't enter into an agreement, even on a consensual basis, uh, to increase their rent more than the market rent amount. So you could think as a landlord, you're protecting yourself by getting it in writing, saying that, you know, they're agreeing to this and, and all of these things. If that tenant decides to take it to the landlord tenant board, it, none of them, none of it matters. It doesn't matter if it was consensual. It doesn't matter if it was in writing. Uh, they can apply to the landlord and tenant board, and they will likely be awarded. And the the landlord will have to refund the tenant whatever that unlawful rent increase amount was. Now the thing is that tenant only has twelve months to file that claim. So so that's a big thing. And the other thing I will add about uh, rent increase is there are exceptions. And those who practice law, we love exceptions. So um, <laughs> two of the big exceptions is the new builds, right? So any um, dwelling that was built after November 15th, 2018, um, or was occupied for the first time after November 15th, 2018, they do not fall under the rent control guidelines. So that means they can increase the rent to whatever amount they deem appropriate, but still only once every 12 months. So I can go in and raise the rent like 25% if I give enough notice, if if I wanted to, theoretically. Theoretically, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, only uh, post-November 2015, 2018. Yeah. And the other exception... Okay, go ahead. No, I want to hear this one because I think you're going to cover what I was going to ask about. Okay. is Well, it's just an application for above uh, guideline uh, rent increases. So they call it AGIs often. And this is just an application a landlord can make to the landlord tenant board for things like major renovations. And major renovations has to go above and beyond normal maintenance or normal repairs. Um, and I, I can uh, provide that list, actually, if, you, if anybody 
um, do you have it in front of you? The eight, the above. I, no. I can do that. Yeah. So, so an application for an AGI has to be submitted ninety days prior to proposed rent increase, and providers can only apply for an AGI on eligible expenses that have been paid for and completed, and only within the last eighteen months. Tenants are consulted on the AGI and are able to participate in the landlord and tenant board hearing. So it does actually have to go to the board. So you know, consider that in your timelines as well if you're going to be applying for an above guideline increase. The maximum amount in AGI, this is actually interesting. I didn't know this. So the, the maximum amount that an AGI can go up in any given year is 3% above the guideline. So 2.5% plus 3%. So you'd be 5.5%. And if it's larger than 3% above the guideline, it could be spread out to an additional 3% over the following two years. So you could get a total of 9%, I guess, um, mm-hmm. added to, over, but it's spread out over the course of, of two years. So you're not uh, you know, hurting the tenant too much with financial stress. Um, so they use an example here, 2020 example, the maximum increase from a AGI on $1,000 rent is 5.2% that, cause that's when it was 2.2% inflation, meaning uh, increase to $1,052 per month if approved. So, I'm just going to quickly go through these conditions. So it says rental housing provider has eligible capital expenses. Um, so it says the roof, exterior walls, doors, and windows, foundation and balcony roof, uh, balcony work, weather protection on the exterior, load-bearing walls, columns, and supports, renovations to ensure heating, air conditioning, plumbing, and electricity are ventilated properly, accessibility features to ensure that access to persons with a disability, including significant elevator work, water and electricity conservation measures and security enhancements. So a good portion of these are add value. I'm just putting my investor hat on here. You know, a good portion of these things are add value. So if you're a landlord, like a lot of people like to think, oh, put the makeup on the pig and, you know, and juice up your returns by making the unit look nice and doing cosmetic upgrades. There were no cosmetic upgrades on that list. And, and I do know people who also think that cosmetic upgrades will qualify for an, an AGI. Um, and that's not the case. There are other things. And this is actually a really important one to note with what's happening with Bill 23 in Ontario right now. An in- extraordinary increase in the municipal taxes and charges for the residential building. We've seen proposed tax increases. I don't even know if we discussed this on the show, but because the government is getting rid of DCs or development charges... Um, a lot of municipalities now are trying to figure out how they're going to get taxes. So this could actually be a huge opportunity for people in your space to go through, go in and negotiate those above above guideline increases to, because uh, like East Gwillingbury, for example, is proposing a hundred percent increase in, in property tax. Toronto is proposing a nine or ten percent increase in property tax. So by law, based on what we're hearing here, a lot of those can be capitalized into um, the rents through an AGI. And then the other one is the rental housing provider has experienced operating costs related to security services provided. Um, and so if there was anything that needed to um, to be changed to create more security for the building that wasn't considered in the existing rent, um, that's another increase in cost that can be capitalized in. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to go to, to quickly cover that one. Um, that's sort of like the, the AGI stuff. No, that was uh, that's really good stuff, and I think it, it it's important to note all that. I mean, on on that note, Nikki, you know, you are a paralegal, you're a property manager, which I'd love to touch on before we uh, get out of here. And, um, you know, I I'd wonder what you would say to landlords regarding rent control. Is this something that business owners and landlords should be doing? systematically the same, you know, the same day the an N4 goes out immediately when the rent's not there, that's a system. Do they raise rents every year by 2.5%? Um, is that, is that a practice that you would recommend or what, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, great question. Thanks. So the big thing is, and I, and I know you said 2.5% because that's what it is this year, but it does change every year. So it is the landlord's responsibility to know what the amount is each year. And absolutely. I mean, it's uh, not a huge amount and it should be something that you should be on top of. And maybe we can segue here into the property management uh, part because the property yeah. manager can keep track of that and they should be on top of it and go, okay, look, last increase was, you know, on this date. So third, uh, sorry, 90 days before that, we're going to serve them with an N1. So that also gives the tenant lots of time uh, to make arrangements for that, that little bit of an increase. And then there's no surprise um, when it comes into effect. So property management uh, manager can certainly help with that as well. And it should be done on a regular basis every 12 months. Yes. Okay, great. On, on that note, let's keep the property management train going here. What are maybe some of the three most important things that a landlord can do from a property management perspective to, to maximize that asset, keep the clients slash tenants happy and, you know, just, just have that asset just chugging along. What, what would the three most important things be? Yeah, great question. So I think the the most important things is to keep the communication open with either the property management company or person and the tenant or the landlord and tenant, making sure that you're doing your repairs, your own due diligence as a landlord, making sure you're responding to any requests for repairs, maintenance requests, anything like that, doing those things on a regular basis. But over and above that, also making sure that you're going in at least once a year and doing an inspection. So you have to give at least 12 months notice, uh, sorry, you have to give at least 24 hours notice uh, that you're going to be going in and doing a an inspection. At that time, you definitely want to check and make sure smoke detectors are in good working order, uh, you know, change the furnace filters for them talk to them, see how things are going, make a list of any issues or concerns that they have. That really does go a long way in building and maintaining that good relationship uh, that you want with your tenants. Awesome. Um, I, I, I may be worth discussing before we do. I, I think we kind of covered what to do if there's a problem in a lot of cases, but we can maybe finish up with that one. But also examples while we're talking about property management and and above guideline increases and evictions and stuff like that, what not to do. Like, you know, you and I have heard some, some horror stories and I know that there are a lot of amateur landlords who really, really, really push the limit on what they can do. And they're in a lot of cases trying to take advantage of the fact that some, in some cases, tenants don't know their rights and the government obviously is trying to put more and more um, effort into and information into tenants knowing their rights. They're trying to educate tenants and make sure that they know what those are through, you know, systems where there's legal aid, but also through online stuff. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some, probably the most common examples. I think probably the most common example from my perspective would be faking that you're going to sell a property or faking that you're going to have family move into a property and, to, and using that as an excuse to get a, uh, is it an N11, I guess, or you could use an N13 to, or N12, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you get an N12 where, you know, the tenant agrees, oh, I'm going to move out in 60 or 90 days or whatever, because, um, you know, your family members moving in and it's like, basically it's a bird dog. It's like you fake them and then you go put it up for, for rent at, you know, 50% more than it was. And we, you, you know, you and I know I have a tenant in one of my places right now where their previous landlord literally did this. And we're discussing with that tenant what their, their recourse would be because they've been asking. Right. So 
what, what happens in cases like this? Cause I think this is one of those things that's really, you know, I, I'm of the perspective that bad landlords put as much stress on the, on the landlord and tenant system as bad tenants do. And I, and I don't think it's, it's binary that one side or the other is really causing all of the problems. So how do we be good landlords and what should we give me a couple of like, maybe the three worst things that you can do where you're going to get completely screwed open and shut case in the landlord and tenant board. If you do this bad thing and the tenant takes you to the board, what, and what are the damages that you would be owing in those cases? Oh yeah. Okay. So who I could go on and on and on, but good. <laughs> you have Let's do touched it. on so many important things. So this is the business, right? And it is the, the landlord's responsibility to know the law, just like it's the employer's responsibility to know their work, right? So you got to get familiar with the act, right? When I say the act, it's the um, Residential Tenancy Act or the RTA, as we we often refer to it as. You need to know that. Even if you don't understand legislation, you don't understand law, you still need to know what your responsibilities are under that act. And that act is actually there to protect tenants, right? So it's so that landlords and tenants both know their rights and responsibilities under the act. Unlawful evictions, which is is what you're referring to there, Dan, unlawful evictions is the number one offense that is uh, seen before the, the landlord and tenant board. And we're talking very serious financial implications. So if a landlord is found guilty of an offense, they could face fines of up to $50,000 for an individual and up to $250,000 fine for a corporation. So these are wow. very, yeah, very serious um, offenses, very serious implications. Now, those are kind of worst case scenarios, you know, kind of um, for what we would call the slumlord um, situations or repeat offenders. But still, you want to know what your rights and responsibilities are as a landlord under the under the Residential Tenancy Act. The, the form that you, two forms you were referring to, one is the N-11. So that's where a tenant and um, landlord agree mutually that they're going to move out on a certain date. The other form is an N-12, and that's where they're going, the la uh, landlord wants to take it for personal use. If you take it for personal use, you have to reside there for a minimum of 12 months. So you can't say to the tenant, I'm moving in or my family is moving in. So you need to leave. The tenant may leave without having a hearing. They may just agree with the eviction and say, OK, I'm going to leave, even though they have a right to a hearing. They may not exercise that right. And then next thing you know, either la landlord doesn't move in or they just move in for a month and then they end up moving in a new tenant, usually at market market rent and before the tenant wasn't paying market rent. And that's where you're going to see these fines. Nine times out of 10, I mean, you would be guilty of an offense as a landlord if that's what you did. And what's the fine like in that in that case? Like, is it the difference between because I think we we discussed this with somebody that uh, that had asked us who went through this and, and they, I think it was like, Basically, the damages are an entire year worth of the difference in rent that they're paying between the two units. Yeah, you could you could claim that. You could claim the the costs of moving. Plus, and so those are are damages that would potentially go to the tenant. And then on top of that, it could be up to fifty thousand dollars if it's an individual. Crazy. Yeah, and that's on top of the other damages. What if we, and again, this is just plain devil's advocate here. What if, what if, you know, someone moves out, they're saying they're going to get family in there. No one moves in the place. sits vacant for a year to hit that 12 months. 
um, you're doing the renovations and whatnot during it. Uh, you know, it's still under your name and, and, you know, you you're stopping in on the weekends over, but you're not actually living there. Is that mm-hmm. a way around it? Mm, what so, would be the point no. anyway? I mean, the economics of that sound horrible. Per- no, for, much, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm just I'm just curious because I know we're going to get these kind of questions. You know what? Because what, that is, you know, it's such a common thing to that that we see because we you know, we have the, the you know, going back to the rent control at two point five percent with the interest rates that we're paying now, if you're on a variable, um, you know, a lot of people are seeing cash flow disappear. And I think that's why we've we've seen this method, which has always been around. But this method has been going crazy over the last couple of years as real estate investing has become the new hot thing. And it's, and now in this rising rate environment, people almost need to bring mar- mar- uh, rents up to market rent. Mm-hmm. But you said renoviction, and we actually haven't talked too much about renoviction yet. And that's a really good point because renoviction is uh, when a landlord says that they're going to either demolish or, or uh, renovate or repair, do something major with the unit, often requiring the tenant to vacate or move out in that case. And it gets really complicated. I certainly uh, suggest getting the help of a paralegal if a landlord is wanting to take this avenue. Uh, compensation is um, is uh, awarded, like so the landlord has to give some compensation to the tenant, um, but they also have to give the right of first refusal. So once yeah. the renovation, yeah, once the renovation and is it at market done, rent, rent or like the original rent, or they can the previous rent. Yeah, yeah. Wow. that's what yeah. I think. A lot of people don't know that because they think, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, get an eviction. I'm gonna, um, and I mean, here's the challenge with me for this one because mechanically it's very difficult. And you're, you said this as well. Like it's it's a bit of a sophisticated maneuver because the reality is, if you evict somebody based on a renovation which form is that again by the way a renovation sorry uh i'd have to double check yeah, all, yeah. but so they, so evict them based on uh, renovation and then they move out and then they're gone for a long time because renovations take a long period of time and then maybe they don't want to come back or whatever but let's if you but if you take it up back take a new tenant back at market rent um are they would they be entitled to damages in that respect as well like this is where it's kind of are there cases like is there is there precedent cases where tenants have been um been awarded anything because of like that those grounds for eviction being unlawful or whatever it was as well yeah for sure and so the thing is the tenant has to indicate before they even vacate the property whether or not they're interested in taking back that unit post renovation. So it's not like they really have the ability or or the right to decide after the renovation, okay, yeah, now I want to come back in. So it is a form that they have to sign off on saying that they do want that that right of first refusal when the renovation is complete. Now oftentimes they decide they don't want to to move back in because now they've resettled somewhere else and and they've adjusted to that new way of life and and they don't want to go through a move again and, and they have every right to say they've changed their mind and in that case then the the landlord can lawfully uh, post it at uh, the market rent value and um, I would still there are certain forms this one gets very complicated and I really would suggest getting a paralegal to help with the forms because you really do want something in writing indicating that they that it was offered to them and they did not want to take it you, you need to cover yourself there 
Awesome. awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, Nikki, I think we, we've got like dozens more questions for you, but we're not going to ask them for uh, today because I think you've given us a whole bunch of amazing information, a lot of stuff to think about. Um, why don't we call it a, a wrap for that right now? And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Well, 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 that was... Uh enlightening to say the least in yeah we got to stop bringing back such value-packed guests because they're just going to probably eventually usurp our role here as as hosts of this show people are just going to (laughs) keep requesting us to to bring these folks back the takeover yeah i mean i mean (laughs) you know nikki is definitely something we will we will be having back so i'd encourage anyone that wants to first of all get in contact with nikki to to reach out to us and we will facilitate that introduction i'd also encourage Anyone listening that has any specific property manager type, paralegal type questions, send them over and we will compile them. And the next time Nikki graces us with her presence, we'll ask her those harding questions, really drill into her and see if she actually knows what she's talking about. Yeah, she does. (laughs) Yeah, I think also, you know, it, it really helps like you know, a lot of these things you can talk about broadly and theoretically, but a lot of these questions need to be answered. It's like, you know, we totally can do this, right. totally we can do right. this podcast, we can talk about deals, we can talk about investing theoretically, but everything happens on a deal by deal basis or on an instance by instance basis. And in, in the legal profession, especially it's about precedent and cases and understanding how these things actually work. So ask us the real questions and we'll, you know, we'll compile them and we'll try and get through all of them next time we have, you know, we have these recurring guests. Our goal is to try and get them on once a quarter to talk about specific things. We want to have these subject matter experts who keep coming back that you can be familiar with and build this relationship within this base base of knowledge with. So we have a a few more exciting guests coming as well, but for for those of you who have any specific questions for Nikki, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. Love it. Let's, uh, let's leave it there. Hope everyone got a ton of value from that episode. Uh, hop on, leave us a five-star review. And if you want to work with Dan and I, or, or, you know, send those questions over there is an email in the show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.